So today we're going to talk about Paleozoic mass extinctions. Do you guys know what a mass extinction is? I assume you could probably figure it out. Um, this picture is a, a little bit dramatic sitting over here on the right hand side. I think that's all um, going to be like sheep or something like that, some sort of farm animal. But uh, what it is, is when you have a mass extinction of um, life. So you have a great uh, decrease in biodiversity. When we're looking at, it's okay, we just got started. When we're looking at the uh, geologic time scale, it is very geologically sudden. So it seems like it happens like all of a sudden you see all these different life forms that are gone in the rock record. Um, typically this happens on a global scale when we talk about mass extinctions. Um, so regardless of your latitude or your depositional environment, uh, it will take place. And it typically affects a large number of organisms. So whether it's, um, it's like the really large dinosaurs or really diverse fish or what have you, it typically will affect the entire food chain when you're talking about um, a mass extinction. So when we say that it's geologically sudden, typically it happens between a thousand to a few million years. So in a human lifespan, that seems like a very long time. But when you're looking at rocks, it's like all of a sudden you see all this biodiversity and you see a high number of fossils and then you'll go sort of to the next rock layer and then all of a sudden everything changes. And you might just see um, stromatolites or just very more primitive uh, life forms. Sometimes uh, it's actually quite difficult to resolve within a few thousand years in the geologic record. You need some sort of marker bed. So if you have like a volcanic ash layer that you can date the crystals in the ash layer, that'll give you like a relatively precise age. Uh, sometimes that can be used to constrain because if it, depending on the type of extinction, if it was like a meteorite impact or something that would have created like a special layer, there are different uh, types of techniques that we can do to date it. But a lot of times we don't have that, that luxury. So it's kind of relative. It's like, oh, you know, you see all this biodiversity and you see all these different types of fossils and then you go kind of into the next bed and then all of a sudden you just, you don't see any of those fossils anymore. And as you walk up, so this picture right here is supposed to depict um, if you measured a stratigraphic section. So that's basically where you measure the thickness of the rocks and you describe all the sedimentary structures, uh, the rock type, the fossil type, everything that you see in the rocks, all the different characteristics, you measure the thickness and describe it. And what'll happen is you'll sort of see all these, you'll have all these different observations that make sense and they coincide with each other and then bam, you'll hit a zone and you won't see it, those, those fossils anymore and then as you continue to walk up the hill the biostratigraphy or the biodiversity completely changes and you may start to see a completely different set of fossils above it so um, that's what we mean when we say geologically sudden and that's a kind of a whole specialty in geology that you can you can go into and you can study that all right so when we talk about global scale, there's two different types of connotations when we talk about global scale. So the first one is that it must occur everywhere on Earth at the same time, not just in one sedimentary basin. So sometimes you'll see, uh, depending on what type of system you're working in, um, wherever you're located in the world, you may see some sort of biodiversity maybe in one uh, basin, and then maybe you go to a different part of the world and you see something different. 
That doesn't necessarily mean that an extinction has taken place. It probably means that it's a different uh, depositional environment, meaning the water temperature was different, um, you're at a different latitude, you had different salinities, maybe you were on land versus in the ocean. It just could be, uh, we call it a lateral facies change, is like the geologic term that we use to describe it. Uh, this would require a detailed correlation. So there should be some sort of characteristics, especially if you can kind of understand how it changes laterally for you to make sense of that change and not say that it's a, um, an extinction. And then the second caveat is that it must affect all types of organisms. So when you have a global or a mass extinction, it affects everyone. It's, I mean, it may happen where it affects some types of organisms faster than others, but typically it'll be a change across the entire food chain. So um, it'll affect the shallow marine is an example, benthic invertebrates. So that's what we talked about on Thursday last week. It can affect the plankton. So that's the actual, like the plants in the water. So it affects the, the animals, it affects plants, it affects animals on land, so the land-walking vertebrates, and then also land plants, so it affects everything. And then additionally, it will also affect a large number of organisms. Uh, the diversity decreases, and typically what happens is you'll lose greater than 50% of species, 33% um, of the genre, and then 25% of the families. And that's just your taxonomic hierarchy. So that's the branches that we always refer to. Um, so you can see it really can affect a lot of um, organisms. And I know there's some um, mass extinction ones. This one in particular at the end of the Paleozoic, it's thought that up to 90% of all organisms on the earth uh, were killed off. So it's very, very significant. And then just to remember that because this was um, in geologic time, it was millions and millions of years ago, that the actual number of individuals is nearly impossible to quantify. So remember that, you know, we, we understand a lot about Earth's history through fossils, but remember when we were talking about fossil, fossil preservation like two weeks ago, um, that you don't often preserve fossils a lot of the time. And you may have had a mass extinction, but there's really no way for us to exactly know how many organisms were killed off. Just because they weren't preserved, uh, that has been, that crust has been subducted. So that could be another mechanism. It could be that they're deep inside of a mountain belt and we're, it will, it'll never actually be exposed for us to see it. Or the rocks could have been metamorphosed. So those original fossils and structures, we no longer see them because it's now a marble, for example, if you're dealing with a limestone. All right, so when we're talking about diversity, um, I know there's, you know, diversity can be thought of in a lot of different ways, but scientific diversity is actually a ratio. So it is the number of types, and types refer to the taxonomic level, whether it be the phylum, the class, or the genre, so the trees, the branches, over the unit of time. And time we refer to as the geologic period. So just make sure when we measure diversity in science, it's a little bit more um, quantifiable than let's say like, oh, just randomly speaking about like the diversity and you have a lot of different organisms, okay? Just so you have a little bit more of an understanding of what diversity means in geologic, uh, in the geologic space. And then um, the rate. So when you, when you take the number of types over the unit of time, you'll have the rate. 
And then what that tells us is the rate of speciation versus the rate of extinction, ultimately. Uh, don't worry, I'm not actually going to ask you to do any math problems like this on your exam, but it's just something to be aware of for the future. All right, so here is a chart where they have done exactly that. Uh, this is what we refer to as paleodiversity because it happened in the past. Um, this is based on the number of preserved types during the specific time period. And then just remember when you're looking at these curves, the biases. So those biases would be that uh, rocks have been metamorphosed, sandstones or um, limestones, and therefore we can no longer see the fossils. So you're losing that. You're losing if you've had continental crust that's been subducted. Also, if you have formed a mountain belt and those fossils are now in the middle of the mountain belt and you can't, they haven't been eroded, so you can't see them. So just remember, there's lots of other things that can happen, plate tectonic speaking, that don't really allow us to really get the full picture of the fossils that were actually there. And you can see that actually through time, um, overall, so, if you look at the left-hand side of this chart, this is 545 million years ago, so that's about the Precambrian-Cambrian boundary. So we're only talking about the Phanerozoic. So that's visible life, if you will. That's literally what it means. And then um, up until today. You can see that overall, we've had a huge increase in biodiversity. And that's simply through, um, in the most simplest forms, and the simplest way to think of it is through evolution. We have a ton more uh, biodiversity now than what we ever have had in Earth's history. However, if you look closer at this graph, uh, so this is just the big general curve, but if you look closer, you can see that there's high points and then there's low points, high points and low points. Every time that you see one of those low points is going to be one of your mass extinctions. So the one that we're speaking about today, um, the end of the Paleozoic, is referred to the end Permian mass extinction. And that took place approximately 250 million years ago. So you can see that during uh, the Carboniferous, so that includes um, the, let's hear what does that include, the Pennsylvanian and, I'm blanking out on it, the Mississippian, sorry, is um, this part. And then the Permian is P right here. And you can see that beginning in about, I would say, the early Pennsylvanian through the end of the Permian, you had a pretty good um, increase, uh, or not a huge increase, but you had a high number of biodiversity. And then you see how it has this big drop off at the end of the Permian. So that is considered a mass extinction. And then uh, what we'll begin talking about next week before uh, you guys go away for Thanksgiving is going to be the Triassic. So the age of the Mesozoic, the age of the dinosaurs, is this period right here. And then we'll have another lecture on the end of uh, the Mesozoic, so the end of the Cretaceous, and you see that this is that large mass extinction that killed the dinosaurs right here. So overall, we've had an increase in biodiversity, but when you start looking at the details of this graph, you can see where these mass extinctions actually took place. Okay, so hopefully, um, I, I find that this sort of thing pretty fascinating actually, because it's, it's a lot of different things happen in the earth for some of these to take place. All right, so this is uh, going into a little bit more detail about the diversity and abundance uh, biases. So uh, this is most of the things that we've already talked about. So it's the likelihood of an organism to be preserved. So sometimes you just simply don't preserve the organism for various reasons. 
Um, and then also the amount of sediments. Another thing to think about is the number of paleontologists working on the fossils of that age. If you don't have paleontologists working on the fossils, there's really not going to be a lot that we're going to know about it. And typically, you know, in geology or in when people study fossils, there are things that people just generally like to study more because maybe they find it more interesting. It's not that we live in a society where we assign, okay, you know, here's all the paleontologists and we equally divide them and assign them to distinct periods of time. I mean, we don't live in a communist country, so we don't manage our science that way. So, um, yeah, so people are allowed to work on what they love and uh, generally you know, there's favorites where you have people that are really into dinosaurs or you have people that are really into specific types of fossils. So therefore, there are some that are, you know, less fascinating that we don't know a lot about because people just simply don't study them. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Um, there's a lot more on the slide, but I'll let you guys read it on your own time. All right, so changes in diversity. Uh, typically, these are considered to be fluctuations in diversity over time. And a lot of times they are driven on external factors. And also it reflects the ability of fauna to adapt or even capitalize on those changes. So sometimes change isn't bad. Actually, a lot of times change in your environment is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, if your environment changes due to plate tectonics, sea level, um, whatever, either plate tectonics or local tectonics, um, whatever it may be, uh, sometimes it actually causes uh, organisms to become more biodiverse. It's not always a bad thing. So that's just something to consider and uh, to keep in mind. Uh, when you have a mass extinction, that's because the organism that uh, was present during that time period, they were not able to adapt in the changing uh, conditions. So the climate changed, the, the tectonics changed, sea level changed, and they weren't able to adapt to it. Um, and then when you have mass extinctions, that's when you had uh, a global change. So sometimes they're little lo more local environmental changes. Sometimes they're on the global scale. It just depends on uh, what it is. And they're all different. So they're all slightly different. All right. So what will cause an extinction? I think this is the really cool thing to think about. Um, one of them could be the physical environment, what we've already ta talked about. So it literally could mean a difference, uh, a temperature change, a salinity change. It could be, uh, it could be where you have like, um, sorry, I just blanked out. Oh, if you have pollution, for example, something like that. Like if you're in the modern and you're dealing with pollution, that could it could also be that. Um, another cause of the extinction could be competition and predation from other organisms. So, for example, like humans, we are at the top of the food chain. So there are things that we do that causes uh, things to go extinct just based on our behavior. This has been happening throughout geologic time. So when humans weren't around, there were other animals that were at the top of the food chain. Simply, sometimes they just they literally will wipe out a population because they feed on it and they feed it and feed on it into extinction. Um, you can also have catastrophic events. So you can have massive volcanism. So you could have a huge, huge volcano, uh, something similar to like if uh, Yellowstone would have erupted. Uh, you can also have a meteorite impact or an asteroid impact. So something that hits the earth that's very large and it causes a devastating effect. Um, you could also 
potentially have um, an artifact in the fossil record. So what that is telling you or what it means is that there's just um, an unconformity or a gap in the fossil record and we just don't see any, it's gone. It's been eroded away. Um, that can happen from tectonics typically. And then also, um, I'm not gonna talk about the last one, but it's just a lack of speciation. All right, changes in the physical environment. So these are the details. These are some of the things I blanked out on. Okay, so of course we have temperature and then we have salinity. Those were the two that I mentioned. You can also have changes in light. Um, the avail availability of CO2 and O2, so if our atmosphere changes for whatever reasons. Turbidity, that's the pollution part. Um, before there were humans creating lots of pollution and plastic. If you had a change in tectonics and then a change in environment and all of a sudden you have, you form a delta that maybe wasn't there and you empty a bunch of really dirty, muddy water from the land into the ocean, that can cause coral reefs to die. And that's a natural process. That's something that can happen entirely on its own and not necessarily um, happen because humans are there. And then also um, a suitable substrate. So some of the organisms that we learned about, like the bryozoans, um, the ones that encrust, and also some of like the things that form the coral reefs, if they don't have a substrate or a place for them to initially grow, they aren't gonna grow. So you really need to have um, something for some of the organisms to grow on. So the encrusting bryzoans, there has to be like a rock or a coral or some sort of thing there in order for the bryzoans to attach to it in order to grow. Um, that's not generally as important as some of these other things. So temperature and salinity, I think are probably some of the biggest and also turbidity. All right, I'm gonna skip this slide. All right, when we talk about uh, climate fluctuations, Typically, this is relates back to or is related to changes in solar radiation or isolation uh, leading to glaciations. So throughout Earth's history, we go through greenhouse periods. That's when, uh, that's probably currently what we're going into. That's when you melt the polar ice caps and uh, you raise sea level uh, and then the Earth becomes a lot warmer and then um, you get the ice house periods and that's where you have the glaciers start to form and they start to develop and then they encroach, um, they're on the poles and then they start to encroach onto the continents. And then you have a decrease in sea level because you're forming all that ice at the polar ice caps. So sea level will tend to go down. Um, that can often cause climatic fluctuations or it can cause um, extinctions. Typically during times of major cooling events, um, they will correspond with mass extinctions. And um, the people, or not the people, the survivors, the organisms that you see that survive through ice, ice ages, um, those they just tend to be better adapted. So um, if you think of like the last uh, glaciation, it would have been uh, maybe 10 to 15,000 years ago. And there were Native American species around and there were woolly mammoths around. And one adaptation they had is they were, they had a lot more fur. So if the organism is allowed or they have the ability to adapt, um, then they will survive through some of these uh, climate fluctuations. Um, all right. Another thing that we have to consider is it relates to people in certain parts of the world, but it also relates to um, certain types of habitats, so uh, critters as well. So when you have crowding, so competition and predation. 
a lot of times what will happen is when you have too many of one organism living in one area, um, they'll, they're either forced to move, so they have to, you know, spread themselves out, or um, what will happen is if, like, for example, if you have starfish, I don't know if you guys knew this, but if you have an overabundance of starfish in a location, they actually turn into, uh, they rely on cannibalism. So they literally start eating each other if there's too many of them in a space. And they'll do that until there's not so many of them. Thank goodness humans don't work that way. At least I don't think they do in most places of the world. But um, in nature, we see this all the time where they get too crowded and sometimes they can literally choke themselves out so they'll, they'll kill themselves. So for example, an algae bloom will there's so much algae living in one area and it'll cause a big bloom and then they use up all the oxygen and then they essentially kill themselves. And then you see all the decaying organic matter and then that's what causes it to smell bad. I don't know if you've ever lived in a place where they have algae blooms, like either in the ocean or in lakes, but typically it's quite nasty. So you get an overabundance of nutrients that come into the lake. You have a massive amount of algae that's all green and it blooms and it's all alive and you have so much of it, it uses up all the oxygen in the water and then it completely kills itself and then it all dies. And then when it dies, it causes the lake to stink. Um, it causes the fish to die. It's really devastating. And then everything ends up dying and settling. It settles at the bottom of the lake and then the cycle will just repeat itself. So I, when I grew up, I lived on a lake where every year this happens. So in the summer, the water literally is paint green. Like, the water doesn't look blue. It, it literally looks like green paint. It's disgusting. So it clears up eventually Yep, and then in the winter, it, all the, the organic matter, it fills in, like, the lake, and it falls to the bottom. And then the lake freezes over because it's at a high latitude. It's a cold climate, so the lake will freeze over. And then the water's clear and blue in the spring, and then the algae bloom starts to kick up again. It's um, in, it's an area of a lot of farming, so it's all the nitrogen from the fertilizers from farming. It all kind of settles into one big lake, and it, that's what drives this thing to happen every year. Um, it'll probably, so one thing to think about is because you have massive amounts of organic matter just piling up year after year, that's probably going to be a really good like coal or maybe even an oil deposit, you know, hundreds of millions of years into the future. But systems like that are what generate uh, hydrocarbons typically or some sort of energy source. All right, we already looked at uh, this graph, but one thing to note, uh, the largest mass extinction happened at the end of the Paleozoic, but there were actually three major uh, extinctions that took place in the Paleozoic, the time period that we've been studying the last two weeks. We had one at the end of the Ordovician. We had another at the end of the Divonian. And then we had another at the end of the Permian. The one though, by looking at this graph, you can really see that the one at the end of the Permian was the largest and the most significant and had the largest impact on life because you have, it was up here and then it went all the way down to here. Whereas these was maybe half, half of that. All right, this is uh, focusing in just on the Ordovician. And you'll see that there were some trends. So even within the Ordovician um, mass extinction, so the one that took place here, there were even some smaller ones. So when you start really looking at this graph, you know, you have the major ones, but there's even smaller ones where you have these little wiggles that go up and down. So it's just something to keep in mind. 
All right, we think that the end of the Ordovician extinction lasted approximately 2 million years. Um, it's thought that it only affected marine organisms. 22% uh, invertebrates families became last extinct. So that's mostly the, the organisms, the, the seashells and the bryozoans and the crinoids, stuff like that. 57% uh, of marine invertebrates became extinct. And then um, you saw a large decline of the trilobites and the brachiopods, the bryozoans, and the graptolites. We didn't speak in detail about the graptolites, um, so don't worry about that one. And then, um, yeah, so we don't really think it affected land animals or plants. There weren't a lot during that time period, but we don't really think it affected that. So something happened in the ocean. There was some sort of change within the ocean. Uh, what is the cause of that mass extinction? Um, these are some of the hypotheses. Uh, perhaps it was uh, glaciation. So you would have started to form uh, glaciers. And when you, yeah, the water could have become more saline, perhaps. It would have happened in the latest Ordovician. And uh, one mechanism that scientists may use to study this would be the oxygen isotopes of the marine shells uh, during that time period. So that could be a tool perhaps um, to test this. Um, I'm not gonna get too much into that, but one thing um, when we go into an ice house period, there is a specific type of rock that is sort of the signature of going into a glaciation or coming out of a glaciation, just something that's related with glaciers. And we refer to that as glacial tillite. This is what it looks like. Um, I'm not gonna get into the details of it because it's a little bit beyond the scope of this class, but uh, typically what you'll see is this conglomerate of uh, material, and there's some specific features within it that we can say, okay, this looks more glacial than let's say a conglomerate that's associated with like an alluvial fan. But what happens is when you're either um, coming into a glaciation or more commonly coming out of, out of a glaciation, you'll see these guys being deposited in the rock record. And oftentimes they'll be really large deposits that are laterally extensive. So you'll see them on several different continents. And that could just be evidence that there was uh, an ice house period at some time in association with this, this stratigraphic unit. When we refer to the oxygen isotopes of marine shells, uh, generally we have to use uh, brachiopods. So we can't just run the isotopes on any organism and say, okay, yep, we got it. it you have to be very select. Um, whenever you're dealing with geochemistry, there's all these caveats of geochemistry. And um, I'm not gonna get into those details because that's like a whole nother class in and of itself. But typically, if you were to um, select an organism for whatever reason because of the stable mineralogy, um, it's, yeah, not going to get into it. But what happens is you, what you'll do is you'll compare the ratio of the two different isotopes. So you'll look at the ratio of uh, the 16 oxygen over the 18 oxygen. And when you compare that ratio, you can... Um, take it like through time and you'll generally get like a trend of aligned. 
And when you see the trend of that line change, that's usually an indication of an environmental change. So it's all very interpretive and a lot of uh, the methodology and the geochemistry, it can be a little bit speculative. So it's just something to know. It's a tool, but it's never an end-all answer. You have to integrate it with your other observations that you see in the rocks. Okay. Um, glacial oxygen. I'm not going to talk about this. It's just a bit too much for this class. Okay, so the end, the origin of the end, sorry, origin of the end or division glaciation. So this is what we think uh, the plate tectonic arrangement would have been. So you have uh, Gondwana and then you have Laurentia. Those are the two main uh, portions. You can also see here that Baltica is over here. Siberia is over here. Kazakhstan. China would have been in the sea during this time period right here. But um, we think that Gondwana was a megacontinent and it was situated over the southern pole. So that would allow it to become uh, the glaciers to envelop. Um, at the pole, they receive relatively little solar radiation compared to the equator. Um, so that's why it's the coldest place on the earth. And then um, any land that would have been at the pole would have been covered in a glacier. When the oceans are at the pole, it the land is kind of a good place for glaciers to form. Uh, you can get glaciers on uh, water, but generally it's, it's just easier for them to have land mass to grow on first. Okay, so how it affected life. Um, it always affects uh, sea level, so it causes sea level to drop. And um, if, for example, the Antarctic glaciers were to melt today completely, we would see uh, an increase, so 200 meters in sea level rise. That's massive. That's like 600 feet of sea level rise if we melted everything. And then um, what will happen is your benthic shallow marine typically tend to be the most effective because where they live on the shelf decreases. So when you have glaciation, let's say you increase the polar ice caps, you drop the sea level, you're going to expose the shelf. So where the shallow marine is, that it will essentially become land. And any of the organisms that require that shallow marine living space, it's no longer going to be there. So let me draw a picture. Maybe that'll help. So... You have the mountains, and then you'll typically, you'll have a beach, and then you'll have the shallow shelf, and then there will typically be this big drop-off. Um, I don't have a blue pen, so we'll just say that the purple is the water. So let's say this is normally where the water level is. This space right here, here to here, this is considered to be the shallow marine. And this is typically where you, we have uh, high amounts of biodiversity because the sunlight, this will be the sun. The sunlight can easily penetrate this living space. All right. Once you get down here, it's really hard for the sun. The sunlight typically doesn't actually reach all the way down here. But in the shallow marine, the sunlight can and maybe actually hit the bottom. So that's why you have really high biodiversity. Okay, so let's say you form glaciers and you have a lot of a huge glaciation event. 
then what will happen is sea level drops. So let's say sea level is then all the way down here. Anything that would have lived in this habitat is now extinct. It's completely gone because it's land. And instead of uh, marine life, then you'll start to get plant life. Like you'll be in a terrestrial environment. And typically because um, the gradient of this can actually be really steep. So you don't have that like shallow shelf anymore. And typically this will actually be much steeper. It'll be more, it'll be more like this in some areas. It just depends on where you are. Um, if you're off the coast of Florida, this is literally what happens. So when you have like a really steep gradient, the sunlight still won't penetrate down here. So all those things that used to live up here, they can't live in this environment and that's, that can cause a mass extinction simply by lowering sea level and glaciation. So that's, that's how that process works. All right, that is all that I have for you uh, today.